You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of Ask Concussion Doc. A few things to cover today. Um, we We had a trivia yesterday. And we had a number of people kind of get the answer wrong, so we're going to address that actually, and it ties in nicely with the third question that we had concerning gray matter of the brain and concussion. First off, though, some news uh, news article today out of uh, the Washington Post looking at a study that was done at Butler, and what they found was students doing the impact test, which is a computerized neurocognitive test, they found that about half of the students were able to successfully sandbag the test, meaning that when they tried to fail, they were able to successfully about half the time. So one of the big knocks on computerized neurocognitive testing when used as a standalone element for concussion is that people may be able to trick the test. The idea that athletes Um, when they're doing their preseason baseline test, if they know that that baseline test is going to be used to hold them back from sports in the event they get a concussion, they're going to try and perform poorly on that test so that in the event they do get a concussion, they can be cleared to return to their sports sooner before they're actually recovered. Obviously, a very short-sighted viewpoint by an athlete trying to do this, but nevertheless, it can and does happen. When you look at what impact says or what some of the neurocognitive tests say, they say that only about 10% of athletes are able to successfully um, fail the test without being caught. So there's invalidity indicators within the test itself that are embedded so that when somebody's doing this neurocognitive test, if they try to fail, hopefully those invalidity indicators will pick up the fact that this was an attempt at failing and it'll flag the test as invalid, meaning that the athlete would have to redo the test in the future. This study, though, shows that even with those invalidity indicators, they're only getting picked up about half the time. So they had 77 volunteers for the study, 40 of whom were randomly chosen and told to sandbag the test, meaning try to fail it without getting caught. 37 were told to try their best, and they found that out of that 40 that were told to try and sandbag the test, half of them were able to do it without the impact invalidity indicators picking up the fact that they were trying to fail it. So for those of you that are still just administering a computerized neurocognitive test as your baseline, if you think that that is sufficient for your athletes, you are sorely mistaken because of the fact that they're able to get around it and there's a, the ability to sandbag the test without being caught. So the way that we've counteracted this, and this is nothing new, this has been going on for years, the way that we've attempted to address this problem is by utilizing a comprehensive battery. So utilizing more test parameters than just a computerized neurocognitive component. We think that computerized neurocognitive testing is an important piece to the overall puzzle of what should be done, The unfortunate part is that most people are using it incorrectly as a standalone test, right? The example that we always use is this would be like trying to diagnose a medical condition purely on a urine sample, 
right? You can't do it. You first need the urine sample that might tip you off, then you need the blood work, then you need an MRI, then you might need a biopsy, then you might need something else. But ultimately, all of that stuff combined is what's going to help you to arrive at your diagnosis. Using one component or one test as a standalone, which is unfortunately how it's being used most of the time, is akin to trying to diagnose a medical condition based on just the urine sample itself. So um, if you are just doing impact, it's time to up your game. And this is just another story that highlights that fact. So that's my two cents for today on the news of concussion in the world. First question that we have today, uh, this guy is on Instagram, um, uh, Jesus Montero, London. Why are MRI scan results after concussion often normal? So this is a question that we get quite a bit actually, imaging following concussion and what is its utility? MRI is normal after concussion because an MRI is a structural imaging modality. It looks at the structure of the brain. Concussion is a functional injury, meaning that the injury itself changes how the brain functions, but the structure of the brain remains intact. There's no brain damage from a structural standpoint following concussion injuries. So when you look at a, a CT scan or an MRI, it's going to be normal. The purpose of doing those scans is to look for something more serious. So a CT scan is very good at picking up fractures of the skull, and it's also very good at picking up bleeds in the brain. So the purpose of doing a CT scan in the hospital immediately following injury would be to look for a bleed. Now this only needs to be done in the event that some red flag symptoms are present. So if the patient is we covered this last week, some of the red flags in our, in our episode 12, but some of the red flags include vomiting, increasing signs of headache, uh, having a low Glasgow coma scale two hours after injury, um, increasing, did I say increasing headache? Probably uh, balance impairments uh, that are significant, uh, and then other overt neurological signs like, uh, you know, cerebellar testing or cranial nerve screen that, that indicates some findings then you'd want to do a CT scan to potentially look for a bleed. MRI is a little bit more useful on, you know, on, in the more chronic states to look to see if there is some actual damage that was potentially missed. And if the MRI scan is normal, then you can rule out more serious forms of brain injury. So moderate and severe brain injuries will have findings on imaging, whereas concussion, which is in the category of mild traumatic brain injury, does not have any MRI or any structural findings. So to reiterate the answer, MRI scans are often normal after concussion because by definition, concussion would have an, a normal MRI scan because concussion is a functional injury and MRI looks at the structure. That's why they're normal. Question number two from the Body Mechanic PT on Instagram. Uh, do you know where the wives' tale of not letting somebody sleep if you suspect a concussion came from? I wouldn't necessarily call this a wives' tale. The idea behind not letting somebody sleep is not because of concussion. It's actually because of the concern for something more serious, like a bleed. After concussion, there's fatigue. Fatigue is one of the things that sets in. If you've ever been around somebody that's had a concussion in the past couple hours, 
after a few hours, they're going to be very fatigued and they're just going to want to go to sleep. And the recommendation for years was to wake them up every hour or every two hours throughout the night. And people still consider this to be um, due to the concussion injury. The purpose of going in and waking them up is if in the event they had a brain bleed and you would go in and try to rouse them and you weren't able to wake them up, it would tip you off sooner that they should be, you should be calling 911 and getting that person to the hospital as soon as possible. Whereas if you were just to let them sleep, you'd wake them up in the morning and it might be too late. Because when somebody has a brain bleed, they may just be completely unconscious and um, not able to display any signs that they do have this. And then when you go to wake them up in the morning, uh, it's too late and they've died. So the purpose of waking somebody up in the first night was not, was not, it had nothing to do with concussion. It had to do with more severe brain injuries, particularly a bleed that was not picked up. So that whole thing is now out. We don't wake people up anymore throughout the first night. The, the thing we do do though, is we keep the person awake for at least three hours after the injury occurs. This is because if something is going on, it's more likely to be picked up in that first three hours. So try to keep the person awake for that first three hours. This is again, not because of concussion, but what you're doing is monitoring for signs of deterioration, right? You're making sure that their speech isn't becoming slurred. You're making sure that they're not, um, that their vision is not going all you know wonky or, or displaying signs of nystagmus or having pupillary asymmetries. You're looking for you know, confusion and things like that. You're looking for things if they're getting progressively worse or if they're getting better. If they're getting better and it's been three hours, you can let the person sleep and they can generally go and sleep the full night. If you are, um, if the person is not getting better or they're actually getting worse, then you would wanna then take that person to the hospital. So the new kind of recommendation is you still wanna keep them awake for a few hours after injury just to monitor for signs of deterioration. However, in terms of waking them up in the first night, um, most recommendations now have gone to being unnecessary. However, I think that if it was my child, I would want to be waking them up anyway just to be safe. So I still encourage people to do it if they're concerned, uh, but the new recommendations are that uh, you don't have to just because if anything happens, it would be in the first few hours. Uh, the last question here is concerning um, the brain hitting the inside of the skull. So it's a really long question, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the at least when I was in university, concussion was taught as a coup contra coup injury. So when I was in my athletic injuries program, they would teach it that, you know, what happens in a concussion is that the brain smashes up against the inside of the skull and then bounces back and hits the back part of the inside of the skull, and that's your coup contra coup injury. Now, some of the newer research coming out looking at some of the functional imaging techniques such as diffusion tensor have found that most of the dysfunction lies in the white matter which is the deeper part of the brain and the new theory is a stretch or shear theory. So the coup contra coup theory of the brain actually impacting the skull and bouncing back and impacting the back part of the skull um, has kind of been replaced for the most part with 
the stretch or shear theory. So if you picture an individual axon as almost um, an elastic band, that axon will have a porous membrane. So there's little holes within that axon to allow for ion exchange to occur. Now, when that brain cell gets stretched, when the injury happens in the brain, you can picture like a, a, a piece of jello. So if you were to shake a plate of jello, the brain's going to deform, or the, sorry, the jello's going to deform up this way and then come back and deform the other way. If you can picture each strand of brain tissue being almost like an individual fiber of jello, and the same thing occurs where the brain shakes and jiggles, and when it does, that, that brain cell gets stretched. Well, those little pores in the brain cell itself, in the neuron, become stretched and opened. So then you're going to get an ion exchange, and that's really what happens is there's an excitatory phase of concussion due to that initial ion exchange. Now, the, the question is actually, I just wanted to ask, does any contact occur between the brain and the skull? Does it play a role in concussion? Because this person is already aware that the new theory is the stretch and shear theory. So the deeper part of the brain is called the white matter. The outer part is called the gray matter. The new thought is that concussion is actually more of a white matter injury than it is a gray matter injury. Now, does the brain hit the in, inside part of the skull? Possibly. I think that there's, there's definitely in more severe brain injuries, when you get into things like cerebral contusions, which is when the brain actually does hit the inside of the skull, and that actually does create bruising. Uh, they can be seen potentially on imaging where you get uh, susceptibility-weighted imaging where it can pick up these microbleeds and this bruising in brain tissue. That does occur in the more severe trauma. In a concussion, does the brain impact the inside of the skull? I think it's highly, highly possible, and I think that the gray matter part could be involved in the symptomatology of that injury. However, the consensus now is that most of concussion pathophysiology is occurring at the deeper levels in the white matter. Rick's looking confused here. He's writing stuff down. Do we have any questions? No, no other questions. Um, so that's it to, to, uh, to wrap up episode 13 of Ask Concussion Doc. Uh, we'll be back next week with a series of questions. As always, you can find us on our YouTube channel. You can find previous episodes on SoundCloud iTunes, etc. But if you want the goods, tune in live every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.